All right. Welcome to another evening lecture of Francis Tavern Museum. And if you're here in person, welcome to our first in-person evening lecture since February 2020. Thank you all for joining us. Remember, if you are joining us virtually and you have any questions during the lecture, please feel free to leave them in the chat or the Q&A box. We will be monitoring them during the lecture and asking them here in person for you so you can still participate. If you are joining us in person, you will be able to ask your questions in person at the end of the lecture. Um, as always, the views of the speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Sons of the Revolution in the State of New York Incorporated or its Francis Tavern Museum. Now, let me introduce tonight's speaker. Craig Chapman spent 30 years managing dual careers in telecom network sales and the US Army and National Guard. As an author, he has combined his lifelong passion for historical research with his expertise as an infantry officer to publish three military histories. Craig earned a BBA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, an MBA from Michigan State University, and is a graduate of the US Army Command and General Staff College. He resides with his wife in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he is here with us in New York tonight. I'm now going to turn it over to you, Craig. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Yes, uh, I am Craig Chaplin, author of Disaster on the Spanish Main, the tragic British-American expedition to the West Indies during the War of Jenkins' Ear. Uh, before I begin, I do want to extend my thanks to the staff here at Francis Tavern Museum for inviting me to speak with you. This uh, campaign back in the colonial era was one, of, was one of the biggest military operations of all American history, and certainly the deadliest. 4,000 American colonists enlisted in the British Army to fight in Cuba and Cartagena, alongside 9,000 soldiers and 13 to 15,000 sailors from Great Britain. This massive expedition accomplished nothing. And in this fiasco, the four soldiers and sailors were the ones who really paid the price. So how did this huge operation get started and why did it get started? Maybe the slides down. Page up, page down. Oh, it's actually there. You go. Uh, left okay. and right. Left and right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Is this is a little bit better. Yes. Okay. Very good. Following the War of the Spanish Succession, or what we colonists call Queen Anne's War, Spain and Great Britain went through decades of commercial competition and conflict. Most of this revolved around. Spain's trade monopoly with its own West Indies possessions. Every year, the Spanish treasure fleets carried 11 million pesos of silver back to Spain in exchange for overpriced Spanish goods sold to their colonists. Well, needless to say, Dutch, French, and British merchants wanted to get a slice of that action. The Brit 
was actually entitled to some trade within the West, Spanish West Indies due to a provision of the Treaty of Utrecht. Uh, this was a provision called the Asiento. However, the British merchants tried to leverage that into a wholesale contraband trade. This was annoying to the Spanish officials who were trying to enforce their own embargo against foreign merchants. So the Spanish governors started commissioning privateers or what they called guardacostas to enforce regulation against smuggling and illicit trade. Well, the Spanish guardacosta captains interpreted their commissions rather liberally. They scoured the Caribbean and picked up about any foreign ship, uh, whether it was trading illicitly or not. In one celebrated incident in 1731, a Spanish Guardacosta picked up a merchant ship captain by Robert Jenkins. And in the process of plundering his ship, they sliced off his ear. Now, Jenkins managed to get to London a couple months later and went to the Secretary of State to present his severed ear and lodge an official complaint. This incident got a lot of press coverage from the newspapers in London. However, that was really part of a, a larger propaganda campaign that was going on between the government of Sir Robert Walpole, which was trying to maintain a friendly relationship with Spain, and the political opposition, which was trying to drum up a more aggressive policy towards Spain. But as the 1730s progressed, more and more incidents of Garda Costa stopping British ships and more and more aggravation and complaint from the British merchant class put pressure on the government. In 1738, they actually had to open up direct negotiations to see if Spain and Great Britain could resolve their trade conflict. Unfortunately, these discussions and negotiations collapsed in June of 1739 and the Walpole government decided that they had to initiate hostilities with Spain. The government uh, formed a, a council of what they called a war council, which consisted of the Duke of Newcastle, who was the Secretary of State, and the two senior admirals, Sir Charles Wager, the First Lord of the Admiralty, and Sir John Norris, who was Admiral of the Fleet. They were given the responsibility of developing Britain's war strategy. When they got together, they discovered something. Despite years of tension and buildup of potential conflict, nobody had bothered to create a contingency plan for how to fight Spain. Now, the admirals took a look at the situation and drew two immediate conclusions. One, Great Britain had a much superior naval force, and Spain had a very large army. This led uh, the admirals to adopt a strategy that you would call a maritime strategy. The idea would be, we'll use the Royal Navy to blockade the Armada Española and its home ports, while sending an expeditionary force to the West Indies to capture one of three crucial ports used by the Spanish treasure fleets. Veracruz, New Spain, Havana to Cuba, and Cartagena de Indias on the Spanish uh, South American coastline. The idea here was that 
if they could capture one of these key ports, they could leverage the, that success to take virtual control of the entire West Indies. Now, to do this, the Admirals calculated that it would take a force of about six to 10,000 soldiers and a very large supporting fleet to seize one of these key ports. Well, with that many ships and that many soldiers, that meant that they had to have a naval component commander in charge of the fleet and a general in charge of the land forces. For the selection of the commanders, there was one obvious choice. Vice Admiral Vernon was already in the West Indies. He was the Jamaica station commander and had recently captured Portobello on the Panamanian coast. So he would be the natural choice to command the naval forces. Command the regiments, the admirals wanted to get General Lord Stair. However, the king was not about to waste his most accomplished senior general on some escapade in the new world while he was worried about what was going on in continental Europe. The king did appoint one of his favorites, Major General Charles Cathcart, the eighth Lord Cathcart, to command the land forces. You will notice that there was no overall commander appointed. It was assumed that the admiral and the general would be supreme each in their own domain. If the two forces that had to work in concert, they would form joint councils of war to hash out how to proceed. This, however, did not work out as well as the people in London had hoped. The British strategy ran into an immediate problem. Turns out they just did not have enough soldiers and sailors to bring more ships out of ordinary and put them onto sea duty or to field more regiments. They were short thousands of men. The Navy went about impressing merchant mariners for Royal Navy service and the Army offered recruiting bonuses to get people to sign up. But six months went by and the British War Council could not come up with a plan simply because they just lacked the troops to put an expedition of the size and scale that they thought was needed. The solution came from Virginia. While rummaging through some old files, the Duke of Newcastle found a decades old letter written by Alexander Spotswood, a former governor of Virginia. Spotswood had made a suggestion that Britain could recruit a force of Americans to fight in the Spanish West Indies. This was done for a previous conflict, by the way. Well, heretofore, the British army had dismissed any thought of ever using provincials. Now, first of all, the Americans made lousy soldiers. I mean, they complained all the time they weren't deferential to their superiors. They were way too free-spirited to be properly disciplined. Also, the American colonists had an equal disregard for the British Royal Navy and the British Army. And on top of that, wages were higher in the colonies. The colonists enjoyed a better standard of living than their counterparts in Great Britain. So, how are they going to find recruits when there just aren't enough financially distressed young men in the colonies? 
Well, Spotswood came up with an interesting suggestion that caught everybody's eye. He said that if the American colonists could sign up and serve under local commanders that they knew and trusted, he projected that they could get 3,000 volunteers to, to join the British Army. Well, the prospect of getting 3,000 recruits rang a bell uh, with the War Council. Even the king got on board with this idea of a new source of manpower for the British Army. The king offered really very favorable terms. Any militia officer who could sign up 100 men to fill a co company would receive the king's commission as a captain. The recruits themselves would get the same pay as British regulars. There was an interesting little uh, condition here. They only had to serve for the duration of the expedition and not make a lifelong commitment to the army. At the end of the expedition, the king would transport them back to their home colonies and they could keep their scarlet uniform and their British brown vest, uh, brown vest musket. There was another little interesting wrinkle to the, uh, to the deal. The new regiments being raised in Britain and the American regiment were gonna be designated as Marine units. Where that becomes important is that the Marines, as with the Royal Navy sailors, were entitled to a share of the plunder expected to be seized when they captured part of the Spanish domain. So an added financial bonus to sign up. The key to the success of this program was really finding the local officers willing to sign up in, uh, the 100 band quotas to fill up these companies. Now this was different than raising a company of soldiers to serve in a colonial militia. The British op army operated on different terms. The king, by tradition, did not pay his soldiers. The king paid his regimental colonels. It was up to the colonels to pay, subsist, and quarter the men and their units. Now that's fine if you were an earl or a duke and you have sway over a large part of Great Britain and you've got the financial resources to uh, handle that responsibility. But if you're a young man uh, coming from a well-to-do family here in the colonies, you have a financial risk of subsisting and quartering your troops that you've recruited if you don't get that King's Commission. So a bit of a risk, however, it was also a reward. If you raise that company and you got the King's Commission, you got half paid for the rest of your life. Unfortunately for the British, plenty of militia officers, uh, sons of uh, gentlemen and politicians stepped forward and started recruiting. People such as Lawrence Washington, the son of a wealthy planter along the Potomac River, John Winslow, who was a great grandson of a signer of the Mayflower Compact. Here in New York, William Cosby, the son of governor of the same name became uh, started recruiting. In Rhode Island, a militia colonel, uh, William Hopkins, decided to become a captain in the British Army and began recruiting. 
the secretary of the governor of Pennsylvania quit his job to become a, uh, become a recruiting officer. So they got the people to step forward, start recruiting. How did it go? Well, Spotswood got it right. If the colonists knew and trusted the officers that they were, they were signing up to serve with, they flocked to the recruiting stations. In 11 of the 14 colonies, men started signing up and volunteering for the British Army. Uh, there was an exception, Georgia and South Carolina had to, to devote their militia to a campaign against St. Augustine, Florida. And Nova Scotia was accepted because there was still concern about front, the French position in this war. But from New Hampshire to North Carolina, the men flocked to the recruiting stations. So much so that a different problem arose. The Duke of Newcastle had only sent enough commissions for 30 companies, but over 40 companies were being raised at the colonies. They, British Army tried to settle this uh, difference by promising a warrant for a commission that could be granted by General Cathcart once the American regiment linked up with the main body down in Jamaica. Uh, that was enough for the people in Pennsylvania. They raised four more companies than they were allotted. But uh, the colony of Massachusetts dismissed 500 volunteers because they didn't trust the fact that they would get the commission. Uh, when they joined up with the British main body. Now, the king, when he first sent his instructions to recruit this American regiment, designated Alexander Spotswood as the commander of the American regiment. Uh, and he promoted Spotswood to the rank of major general. Sadly, uh, Spotswood died in the middle of the recruiting campaign. Uh, and he was replaced by William Gooch, who was the sitting governor of Virginia. So the regiment adopted the identity of Gooch's American Regiment. When they linked up with the British Army, they got rostered as the 43rd Regiment of Foot. Well, filling the ranks is one thing, but fielding a fighting force is something different. These were raw recruits. I mean, the colonists may have known how to operate a shotgun uh, or a fouling piece, but they knew nothing about how to serve as a British soldier. For instance, every British soldier was expected to execute uh, 59 separate commands to handle his musket and his bayonet. Each of these commands issued by an officer would require three to five separate motions all had to be done in unison with everybody else in the formation. You can imagine, it's going to take a long time to take these raw recruits and get them drilled proficiently, just their manual of arms. After that, they had to learn how to maneuver and fire as platoons. Again, that required much more training. Fortunately, the British had sent a cadre of non-commissioned officers and lieutenants to help train these soldiers. But nevertheless, training was only underway for about four weeks through the month of August and into early September when it had to be cut short. 
The reason was the campaign schedule called for the American regiment to link up with General Cathcart's main body in Jamaica in October. So the training program got truncated. They didn't even get to the point where they trained to operate as above company level, not even tra no training whatsoever at a battalion level. From <clears throat> places like Boston to North Carolina, troops filed on board transport ships and collected into two flotillas. One flotilla was here in New York City, another one was in Chesapeake Bay. And in mid-September, these two flotillas departed, marking the first time in history that an American military force deployed overseas. Well, the troops did not get a warm welcome in Jamaica. No food, no pay, no quarters, and no training. It appears that the victualling board in London that was trying to organize this campaign to the West Indies had neglected to include the 3,500 extra daily rations that the Americans would consume. On top of that, they failed to pre-position any, uh, any food in Jamaica. So when the Americans arrived, they had nothing to eat. Now they could theoretically go out in the local economy and pay for their own food, but the British paymasters refused to pay the Americans. They came up with some lame excuse that, well, because General Cathcart's main body is here, we can't pay you. They were willing to lend the Americans some money at a 20% interest rate. Then Admiral Vernon, who was, as many of you might know, was really opposed to drunkenness, for which he created the concoction called grog, watered down version of rum. He dictated that the Americans could not get off the ship and then camp on land because he was afraid that then if they got off ship, they'd run straight to the rum houses and get themselves drunk and literally drink themselves to death. So he enforced keeping them aboard the transport ships where sanitary conditions were already abysmal and many of the troops were already getting sick and dying from dysentery. But according to Vernon, nope, they could not get off the ship. And if you think about it, kept aboard the ship, they couldn't do any more training, which is something that they desperately needed to do. And because Cathcart's expedition got a late start leaving Britain, they stayed on the ships through November, December, and into January before the big expedition arrived in Great Britain. Only General Cathcart wasn't with it. Cathcart died of dysentery during the passage, along with several hundred other British soldiers. Cathcart was replaced by uh, another general, Brigadier General Thomas Wentworth, who was a competent officer who spent 25 years in the British Army. Though in all those 25 years, he had yet to see his first actual action. Now, Wentworth did have an interest in his new American regiment, which, you know, think about it, composed 40% of his fighting strength. So when he landed in Jamaica, he ordered the American uh, regiment to form up and put on their evolutions to see how proficient they were. 
Well, four months had passed since the Americans had completed their four weeks of training. Needless to say, they looked pathetic. Wentworth dismissed them immediately as a fighting formation. He didn't then proceed to do something else. Either out of personal animosity or some disagreement with William Gooch, General Wentworth cut the American regiment into four separate battalions, then parsed these battalions out to three separate or brigades. Each brigade was commanded by a senior British officer. In effect, he left Gooch with nobody to command. And in the process, it kind of uh, destroyed the American command structure. Well, things got worse for the Americans. Admiral Vernon was still short several thousand sailors from all of his warships. He turned to General Wentworth and said, well, can you backfill some of my missing sailors with some of your soldiers? And Wentworth looked at this and said, well, this is a good opportunity to get rid of some of my Americans. 2,500 of the American regiment were dispersed amongst the 35 warships in the Admiral Vernon's fleet completely destroying the chain of command. Most men were serving on a ship with none of their officers. Most and all the officers were serving on ships with troops from several different companies. 20, so these 2,500 Americans, by the way, would spend the majority of their time on this expedition fighting as sailors in the British Navy. Well, I do want to remind everybody, what was one of the important conditions for getting these Americans to sign up? It would be so that they could serve under officers they knew and trusted. Well, now what? They're sailors in the British Navy, and they're subject to shipboard discipline from the captain and boatswains. Yeah. You can imagine this created huge morale problems for the Americans, especially when uh, Many of the ship's captains became fairly abusive. Well, let's proceed to the campaign. The generals and admirals in their first uh, joint council of war selected as their first objective the city of Cartagena de Indias here on the coast of South America, what is now the country of Colombia. Cartagena is located on a long, narrow coastal island heavily fortified with no suitable landing sites. So when the British looked at this situation, they realized they couldn't make any direct attack against Cartagena. The Cartagena is also completely dependent on its own outer bay. All provision, almost all the provisions, even the fresh water for the city came across the bay to the city. Very little traffic came overland to Cartagena. So it was a huge advantage if the British could get control of the Outer Bay. They looked at two entrances to the Outer Bay. One is the Boca Grande channel up here. Uh, this channel had silted in by the 1740s and was not usable by large ships. The main channel is down here at a place called Boca Chica. Boca Chica is guarded by Castillo San Luis de Boca Chica, 
and a few different coastal batteries uh, on the island of Tierra Bamba. British plan would be break, reduce Castillo-San Luis, get into the outer bay, move north into the inner bay called the Surgidero, make a landing on the mainland, and then approach Cartagena from the east after reducing Castillo-San Felipe to Barajas. So that's the British work and you know, tactical plan. It got off to a good start when uh, the British fleet made an amphibious assault on the island of Tierra Bamba. The landing had to be preceded by a naval bombardment to reduce uh, the fort or the battery San Felipe and Santiago. Uh, by the way, uh, if you look at this contemporary map, I need to point out that the uh, the two batteries are mislabeled. Santiago is actually on the north side or to the left, and Battery of San Felipe is on the right or to the south. Well, the five Royal Navy ships conducted a three-hour bombardment of these two batteries, which were defended by a small contingent of uh, Spanish gunners. The five warships had 600 American soldiers fighting as sailors on the ships. And in the course of bombardment, 10 of those soldiers would be killed. One of them was Captain David Provost from New York City. The bombardment did succeed. Uh, matter of fact, the, uh, the British Navy leveled these two batteries. And that evening, British grenadiers landed, took control and secured the landing site. And the following morning, the British regiments came ashore on the cove just above uh, Battery of Santiago. Well, to proceed to the next phase, uh, it would be the beginning of a siege operation to reduce Castillo San Luis to Boca Chica. For that, the British landed a force of American soldiers and a Jamaican work battalion to begin construction of a breaching battery that would be used to knock down part of the walls of the Castillo. The Ordnance Department had provided 20 24-pounder cannons for this breaching battery. Now, these cannons required a stable firing platform. So the Americans and the Jamaicans went to work constructing the battery position. All of this required moving material, guns, ammunition, cannonballs from the shore to where they were setting up the breaching battery hot work in the tropical conditions. And it was taking several days to get this work done. One of the problems they had during the construction process was the Spanish had put up a uh, breach or a battery on the opposite side of the channel in a little place called Abadicos, right here. This battery uh, was firing shells across the channel towards the British encampment. And every time they did that, they disrupted the work going on in the breaching battery. So on the evening of March 18th and 19th, Admiral Vernon organized a raid to take out the battery of Adikos. He gathered a force of American troops coming off of his warships, uh, commanded by Captain Lawrence Washington, and a British company commanded by Lieutenant James Murray. Uh, a name you might know of, he became a general in the French and Indian War, uh, 
the future uh, governor general of Canada. Well, the breaching party, particularly the raiding party, was going to land here at Coe behind Abanicos and then attack it from the rear. But as they were rowing into the shore at this cove, two cannon shots streaked right over their heads. Unbeknownst to the British, they were landing right beneath a Spanish battery called Veradero. The Americans and the British reacted quickly. They jumped out of their boats, charged ashore, and overran the battery before they had a chance to reload and fire another salvo. But uh, you hate to think of what uh, two cannon shots of uh, grape shot would have done to these longboats sitting out there on the open water. Well, after taking out Veradero, they organized uh, into two columns. One went around on the beach. The other one marched through a mangrove swamp. But they attacked the battery from the rear, uh, destroyed it, and took those guns out of action. This marked the first time that uh, the, an American force was engaged in ground combat in this campaign. Well, the breaching battery finally got assembled and began operation on March 22nd. For four days, they blasted the northwest corner of Castilla San Luis de Boca Chica right here. By March 25th, they had succeeded in knocking down a part of that bastion and creating a, a, a viable breach. That evening, the British regiments assaulted, um, entered the uh, Castillo through the breach, uh, just as the Spanish garrison was fleeing out the east gate, uh, trying to get to some of their ships back here in the while that was going on, a force of Americans coming off the warships and some British sailors rode out to Fort San Jose out here in the channel, uh, captured it. And they succeeded in uh, severing the boom between San Jose and San Luis. So this marked success. The British had forced their way through Boca Chica Channel. And this was a, indeed a major British victory at this point. Now, in the two weeks that it had taken to reduce Castillo San Luis, Admiral Vernon and his ships had been sitting out there in the Playa Grande, getting knocked around by the winds and waves, something which greatly disturbed Admiral Vernon. Every day that went by, Vernon sent a letter or some nasty communication to General Wentworth complaining about how slow the army was proceeding and demanding that they get moving so that he could get his ships into the harbor. Well, they succeeded, the channel was cleared, Vernon got his ships into the outer bay, which meant that he had effectively cut off the supply route for the city of Cartagena. Something else, British discovered a freshwater spring at a place called Pasa Caballos. This was really important because it had been over a month since the British had been able to replenish their supply of fresh water. And there's no fresh water on Tierra Bamba, by the way. Vernon did something though, uh, which is very disturbing. He dictated that all the fresh water coming out of that spring would only be distributed within his fleet. He didn't even tell the army that he'd found a source of fresh water 
all this while, the soldiers are out there toiling on the ground. Well, the fleet continued its operation after it got into Yara Bay, moved up to try to force its way into the Surgidero, which was guarded by Castillo Grande and Fort Manzanillo. Luckily for the British, uh, the Spanish Viceroy <clears throat> decided there were, those two defensive positions were not viable and evacuated them beforehand. So the British got free entry all the way into the Surgidero. While the Navy was busy taking over the uh, outer bay of Cartagena, the British regiments were busy packing up their breaching battery and reporting their transport ships. On April 5th, they landed on the mainland and approached uh, their intermediate objective, which was a little hamlet called La Quinta. On the way there, they ran into a Spanish walking force that was guarding uh, the exit of a woodland into the open area of La Quinta. General Wentworth decided that he was going to use his grenadiers to drive off the Spanish walking force. And he uh, deployed a, a force of uh, Americans as skirmishers uh, in the woods to protect the flank, which, by the way, is one of the better uses that the British made of their American uh, soldiers. The British grenadiers uh, charged the Spanish infantry, routed them from the field very successfully, went and occupied their intermediate objective of the Quinta. General Wentworth at that point started uh, looking at what would he do about capturing this high ground at a place called La Popa. Uh, however, as he was in the process of figuring out how to take La Popa, word came down that his American skirmishers, that by the way, he had lost track of, on their own initiative, had climbed La Popa and captured the place for him. But, you know, we take that as a good example of American initiative, but I'm afraid the general looked at that as dangerous practice and working without orders. <clears throat> at any rate, uh, the British had successfully occupied their encampment. They were on the mainland. Time to go to the decisive phase of the operation. And this was the reduction of Castillo San Felipe de Barajas, which sat atop a hill overlooking the only bridge into Cartagena. This is Cartagena's principal fortification. And given the height of the Castillo, it was in a position to actually dominate the city of Cartagena with an artillery battery. The generals at first wanted to construct a new breaching battery. And you'll notice there's a nice hill mass right here overlooking the Castillo, perfect position for an artillery battery. However, at this time, uh, General Wentworth was getting concerned about a couple things. Because of the shortage of fresh water, more and more of his soldiers were falling out due to heat exhaustion. His soldiers also were having continued problems with scurvy. Now, it's hard to imagine getting scurvy in the tropics where everywhere you turn there are lime trees, lemon trees, and orange trees. But the British didn't realize that scurry, scurry was actually a, a, a deficiency of vitamin D. So they didn't know how to deal with scurvy. And their diet consisted almost entirely of prepackaged meat, uh, packaged at, at 
a year earlier back in London. On top of that, Wentworth was looking at the calendar and the rainy season was about to begin in Cartagena. With the rainy season, it was feared that tropical disease would take over and wipe out his troops. And I have to admit, at the same time, Vernon got a nasty communication from Admiral Vernon, or Wentworth got a letter from Admiral Vernon almost every day, hounding him about proceeding more quickly. So General Wentworth made a very rash decision. Instead of proceeding with the second siege, he decided he was going to storm Castillo San Felipe. The plan that he came up with was to make a night attack, uh, catch the Spaniard, Spaniards by surprise, and storm the castle using two British brigades. One brigade would swing around and attack the Castillo from the southwest side, while another brigade attacked the northern face of the Castillo. All this was to be done before dawn so that the guns and the Cartagena fortifications could not participate in the battle. The, the attack would be supported by 500 American pioneers. These Americans were designated to carry wool packs and scaling ladders for use by the British infantry to cross the trenches and scale the walls. That meant that Americans, most of whom were going into combat for the first time, had to go in unarmed. Well, the attack was a complete disaster. Almost nothing went right. Uh, Wentworth had neglected to take out a Spanish outpost, so the Spaniards got early warning of the, uh, the British approach. One of the British brigades got misoriented and attacked the wrong side of the Castillo. The Spanish infantry in the outer trenches stood their ground and pinned down the British regiments on the face of the, of the hill. By the time the Americans showed up, the British infantry was stuck on the side of the hill getting slaughtered by the Spaniards. The Americans looked up, took one look at the Castillo and realized that the scaling ladders that they were carrying were 10 feet too short to reach the top of the walls. The Americans dumped the wool packs, dumped the useless scaling ladders. Half of them fled the field and half appeared to have stayed fought with their British counterparts. By dawn, the situation became hopeless. The guns of Cartagena started blasting away at the British formation. And then the Spaniards counterattacked and drove the British from the field. A complete defeat. Afterwards, in trying to uh, reason away the failure, General Wentworth singled out the Americans and made disparaging remarks about their, quote, wretched behavior in the attack. Uh, I took a look, though. When you go to the muster records, it appears that out of the 500 Americans who took place in this attack, over 100 were killed and wounded. That's a 20% casualty rate for a force that supposedly fled the field. Now, speaking as a military guy myself, I can tell you, those are pretty serious casualties for any unit. 
Well, after the battle, uh, the British still had Cartagena cut off. They still had a huge fleet supported them. They still had a substantial number of soldiers, but they're having more and more trouble. They would already lost another 600 soldiers due to the failed attack. Or the troops were getting sick and yellow fever was showing up in the ranks. They realized that they just didn't have enough men on the ground to defend their campsite and build a second breaching battery. So the generals turned to Admiral Vernon and asked him, please backfill our missing soldiers with some of the sailors off your ships and let them uh, construct the, the breaching battery. Admiral Vernon refused. There was no way he was gonna risk the lives of his sailors serving on land and letting them get sick by tropical fevers. He rejected the idea, which effectively ended the campaign. In a joint council of war, the generals and the admirals agreed they would evacuate Cartagena. And doing so, it took about two weeks to clear uh, the port of Cartagena. The army brought aboard its nearly empty water casks, which only contained breeding colonies of mosquitoes, the mosquitoes that carried yellow fever. So as the British withdrew from Cartagena to Jamaica, thousands of soldiers and sailors succumbed to yellow fever. In effect, the very thing that they're trying to avoid by making a hasty attack on Castillo San Felipe. They eventually do get back to Port Royal. It takes a couple of months to recuperate the army and get over the yellow fever epidemic. In another joint council of war, the British realize that they still have a major force at their disposal. So they select a secondary target of Santiago de Cuba that they would attack and take over that port. This campaign got off to a lousy start. Admiral Vernon, on his own authority, landed the army at Guantanamo Bay, which is 45 miles from Santiago. Now, Vernon told the army, it's no problem. There's a great road that you can take from Guantanamo all the way to Santiago, and it's only like a day's march. Well, they organized a reconnaissance force uh, consisting of some of the troops coming off the warships led by Captain Lawrence Washington. So he and his fellow Marines landed at Guantanamo Bay and did a recon of the interior. So if somebody asks you, who's the first American Marine at Guantanamo Bay? The answer is Lawrence Washington. Anyway, the generals took one look at the, at the ground and realized far from a nice, well-traveled road, there's nothing but a dirt track through wild country, having to cross woods, streams, rivers. There was just no way that the army was going to be able to transport its guns, its troops, its provisions from Guantanamo to Santiago. In fact, if, uh, think about it, they didn't even have any draft animals, didn't have any wagons. There, there wasn't a possibility. The generals told the admiral, we can't do it. And uh, they recommended that the Navy use their warships to break into Santiago Harbor. Well, Admiral Vernon wasn't about to risk his ships fighting the castle guard in the entrance to Santiago Harbor. So he turned around and told the Army, no, you've got to do it. 
for several months, the Army and the Navy were at loggerheads, could not agree on any strategy. Meanwhile, the troops sat at Guantanamo Bay until November, at which time a malaria outbreak struck the troops, killing hundreds more. So they were forced to withdraw from Cuba. They made another abortive attempt to take Panama City, which actually went nowhere, didn't even land. In the meantime, the government of Sir Robert Walpole fell in London, mostly due to the poor results coming from this campaign in the West Indies. The new government formed to take its place decided to cancel this whole mess. So they sent instructions to uh, Jamaica to terminate the expedition. Those orders arrived in October of 1742. The British regiments in Jamaica were broken up and all the soldiers from those regiments were sent aboard Admiral Vernon's ships to backfill missing sailors. Now the king had promised his American soldiers that they could return to their homes. So they used four transport ships to carry all the surviving Americans back to their colonies. In total, 13 to 15,000 soldiers and sailors died on this expedition, the vast majority due to disease. And of those, 2,400 were Americans, which meant that over 60% of the American soldiers who enlisted in the British Army to fight in the West Indies perished on this expedition. What was accomplished? Nothing. It was all a tragic waste of life. In future wars, the war, King George's War and the French and Indian War, British Army showed no enthusiasm for recruiting Americans, and Americans showed no enthusiasm for signing on the British Army. The structure of the American fighting forces in these wars was basically the colonies organizing regiments out of their own militia and fielding them. And if you look at the Revolutionary War, that's precisely the organizational model to form the Continental Army of 1775. Now, that concludes uh, my formal remarks. Uh, at this point, I would love to take any questions that the audience may have, including the people online. Please, Peter. Yeah. Um, did this issue of the failure to have a unified command affect the British in subsequent wars, including the Revolution? Uh, Peter's question is, did the lack of a unified commander influence British strategy in future wars? Uh, the answer, I would have to say, is no. Uh, not until World War II when General Eisenhower succeeded in developing the concept of a unified co uh, combatant commander uh, in control of the air, naval, and land forces for the war in Europe. This is where that precedent finally got uh, settled. I think there may have been a few operations which somebody may have had overall command, but by and large, 
the British Navy and the British Army were separate domains and remain so. Please. This is, this is almost comical. I mean, this was a, a disaster. Nothing went right. And Britain was the leading country in the world at that time. Did you not say? Yeah. Oh, well, just a few years later, they did become the world's dominant power uh, by the end of the French and Indian War, but seven years before. Uh, so, yes. Uh, how do you explain this? Well, that's what I'm asking. Um, I guess the way to explain why this was such a huge failure when Britain was such a powerful nation would be to say that it had been 25 years since Britain had had its last land combat before it launched this expedition. The bureaucracies in London uh, were not accustomed to managing a war effort and it took them a long time to even get the expedition underway. The lack of uh, joint command or the separate command between Vernon and Wentworth obviously functioned very poorly. Was this known to the uh, to the American colonists as an indication that this this could mean that the British were not as strong as they seemed to be and encouraged the <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, before I answer the question about if, did this encourage Americans to become a uh, more combative against Great Britain. Let me get to that after I finish answering your first question about why was this such a huge failure. I think you really have to look at two things driving the British failure. Uh, strategically, they had a huge fleet and a huge armed force at Cartagena with freedom to act and the resources to get the job done. That's a strategic victory. So from a war playing standpoint, this was well done. I mean, they had the enemy where they needed them. The failure is the execution on the ground and on the ships at Cartagena. And for that, uh, you can blame Admiral Vernon with his preoccupation with saving his ships and not risking his ships. And you can lay the blame on General Wentworth for abandoning the tactics of siege warfare and making a very rash decision and executing, by the way, a very poor tactical plan against Castilla San Felipe. Now, repercussions of this British failure, I, I don't think you can extrapolate to uh, the American Revolution from there. I think the Americans always felt at that, at the 1740, that they were British subjects. Uh, it certainly generated more animosity with other British regular forces. It's very clear that there was a widening divide, a disregard. But they, I think they still felt themselves as loyal subjects of the king. Future events would create more division there. Uh, and you do have to take into account Britain had an excellent performance in the Seven Years' War, or what we call the French and Indian War. So I don't think the Americans could dismiss the military capabilities of Britain by the time the revolution came about. But a good question. Yeah, you had a question. Yes. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you, you just mentioned that the Americans uh, did feel a certain loyalty to Britain at this point. They weren't uh, discouraged with the uh, British domination of the mm -hmm. colonies. But uh, 
Britain having so much power and knowing how powerful Spain was, why didn't they simply, they had time, why didn't they simply assemble more British troops and send them over to fight this war? They, Britain really didn't have the manpower to pull it off. Um, the Navy was ramping up at the same time, which meant a lot of their manpower was going to crew their ships, and they needed more and more ships to go out and fight this Armada Espanol and keep it blockaded. They had to field more regiments. They just had, the, uh, it was a manpower shortage that they couldn't fill. Now, as the war progressed, the manpower levels in the Army and the Navy did increase. And in a few years, Britain sent a large, a 16,000 man army to Europe to fight in the war of the Austrian succession. So they did build up, but as far as the expedition going to Cartagena and uh, the West Indies, at the time in 1740 and 41, there was a manpower shortage that they just weren't able to uh, fulfill at that moment in time. Please. I've been to Cartagena and I took a little tour there, uh, you know, an organized tour. And they tell the story a little differently about their amazing Spanish general who lost all his limbs and still managed to defeat the British. So, is this really a, so much a complete British failure or the Spanish actually weren't doing the right things? So well, I deliberately have not address of Spanish commanders, uh, Admiral Blas de Leso, who was, by the way, a one-eyed, one-armed, one-legged admiral, um, in charge of the, uh, the fleet, and Viceroy Eslava, who was the overall uh, man in charge, or king's representative of Cartagena. Let's just put it this way. The Spanish fought well. Blas de Leso and Eslava outgeneraled Wentworth and Vernon. This is, that's a fact. Uh, however, uh, I think the Spanish version of this is that this is a wonderful, magnificent victory of Spanish arms against the Brits. But do keep in mind, uh, out of all those fortifications I showed you, by the end of the campaign, the only ones that were left were Castillo San Felipe uh, and the uh, fortifications around the city of Cartagena. The British demolished everything else. So, uh, in fact, in my opinion, the British had victory well within their grasp when General Wentworth decided to forgo the siege and launch the uh, attack against the Castillo. Uh, so, you can take a bit of truth for both sides. The Spanish choose to believe that their excellent commanders and their brave soldiers held the British off, which is true. And um, I think the British look well, we, we bungled this, which is true. Yes, please. One fact stuck uh, in my mind it said that a large percentage of the American soldiers, like about 20%, were killed uh, during the uh, Killed in one And I remember during World War One, large numbers of Australian and New Zealand troops under British command in Gallipoli were <laughs> killed. Yeah, very close parallel, by the way. And when the United States entered World War One, the British and French generals were demanding that our generals, General Pershing, allow American troops to serve under their commands. And Pershing dug in his heels and say, said, no, absolutely not. American soldiers are going to be under American officers' command, period. And um, that's what happened. 
But I'm wondering if, if the British um, had only British troops under their command rather than American troops, maybe they uh, would have been a little less reckless in their, uh, in their battle strategy. Well, so the question is really is, uh, was the presence of American troops in the force structure uh, something that encouraged the British generals to be a little more reckless in their tactics? Uh, I would have to say no, because it was mostly British soldiers that formed the assaulting force. Um, and I think the generals had absolute disdain for the American soldiers. So they're really didn't feel like they could rely on the Americans. That's why they left them uh, to serve as you know, load bearers for their British counterparts. Uh, but your analogies to Gallipoli, I think are spot on. Uh, a very similar fiasco of an amphibious operation, uh, the cooperation between the land component and the naval component did not work well. Uh, and General Pershing, I would say, was very well advised. Uh, he brought American soldiers to Europe. Uh, he was determined to keep them under American command. And I think if you look back to 1740, you can kind of sympathize with that, uh, with the Americans who felt like, I'm willing to sign up and serve under a company commander I know who's from the colony and not for some British regular army captain who I don't trust. So I think those feelings kind of cross the centuries. Yes, sir. We have a question from the chat and that's gonna be all that we have time for. So uh, did the British accept three black or Native Americans into their troops? <laughs> <laughs> um, excellent question. Uh, the question is, did any uh, Native Americans or uh, Black Americans uh, serve in the campaign? Uh, and the answer is uh, yes. Uh, Massachusetts recruited 50 soldiers uh, that were identified as Native Americans. Now, keep in mind, the British muscle records make no mention of the person's ethnicity. But uh, there was a letter in which the uh, governor of Massachusetts uh, complained that saying that the the, uh, the British Army uh, officer who was recording the recruits for a Massachusetts company rejected 50 Native Americans. And the governor complained to General Wentworth said there's no reason to keep these Native Americans from joining the regiment. Now regarding uh, free Blacks uh, from America, uh, I have to say the answer is probably uh, we, again, we don't have any specific mention of, a, of someone's ethnicity. However, uh, we do know that at least one uh, African-American recruit deserted along with some of his uh, white counterparts. They took a boat uh, from Annapolis and fled up to the top of the Chesapeake Bay. And there was an advertisement posted to capture this recruit and return him to his regiment. So we know at least one guy got recruited, and I imagine there were probably others. And I do want to mention that Jamaican Work Battalion served at Cartagena. These were uh, mostly slaves that were being rented uh, out to the army, and some, I imagine some free uh, 
Jamaican black uh, workmen who joined the expedition. They did a lot, as a matter of fact, they had a major role in uh, constructing the breaching batteries. Yes, please. Uh, you mentioned the uh, ravages of disease mm -hmm. amongst the soldiers. Uh, is there, was there any other war in uh, the history going forward uh, where disease played a very serious role in destroying troops? Uh, the question is, uh, because of the uh, heavy loss to disease in this campaign, does it compare to other wars where disease may have played a major factor in causing deaths. Uh, and absolutely, throughout history, disease has been the major killer of soldiers on the battlefield or uh, in military campaigns, much more so than actual combat operations. This happened to be one of the worst examples of disease, uh, killing off troops. Uh, just in, you know, look at the casual figures. 13 to 15,000 soldiers and sailors died uh, out of the force that was sent. Uh, and this particular case is extremely bad because one, they were very sick when they showed up. Uh, I took a look at the loss rates for the British Army and it's sailing from Britain to Jamaica. They, kept, they lost 8% of their force uh, due to primarily dysentery and scurvy, uh, including the commanding general, I might add. 8% death rate. That is equal to the death rate on convict shipments from Great Britain to North America. And it's 50% of the death rate of the slave middle passages at the time. So that's pretty, to me, that's pretty shocking that you lose that many of your soldiers before they even get to the battlefield. And on that note, that is all of our time. <laughs> Very discouraging note to end yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that's not the most uplifting note to end on, but you can all check out the book, Disaster on the Spanish Main, to learn more. If you're here in person with us, there are some signed copies available to purchase in the back of the room. Thank you so much, Craig, for that wonderful presentation. Thank you. You didn't see her or hear her, but Mary was monitoring the chat from home, <laughs> connecting our virtual visitors. Thank you so much for that. And thank you all in person and online for joining us tonight. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with our programs, you can join our mailing list on the museum's website at francistavernmuseum.org. You will also be able to find our calendar of upcoming events. Our next lecture will be on Thursday, July 14th. This will be another Zoom and in-person lecture, and that will always be noted on the website if there is an in-person component. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, you can also do so on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. Thank you all again for joining us at another lecture, and we hope to see you either virtually or in person again soon. Thank you.